You are listening to the Missouri Audio Project. I'm Yulia Shakis. Today, a conversation with Nick Spitzer, host of the radio show American Roots. He spoke with Sean Gerd, professor of classics at the University of Missouri. Spitzer came to Columbia, Missouri last October. He gave the 32nd Albert Lord and Milman Perry lecture. Here's their conversation. Nick Spitzer is the producer and host of American Roots, which is a two-hour-long radio show, which has been running for 19 years, has somewhere around a million listeners. And American Roots is really a kind of a comprehensive encyclopedia of American vernacular music. So one of the things about Nick is that he's also, he's also an, an academic, uh, works at Tulane, does American Studies and Anthropology at Tulane, and has a PhD in anthropology from uh, UT Austin. This is perfect for the Missouri Audio Project, which has been about leaving your roots, your R-O-O-T-S, in one medium uh, and taking a route out through other media. So we are going to kind of explore the way those two, the way the academic and the radio stuff goes together. And in the morning with your toasted mama lady, oh, To be able to produce a two-hour program as eclectic as this has been really lucky. I didn't think we'd be able to sustain it, honestly. Okay, so here's a little segue, and uh, let me do this one for John Stewart, who I reconnected with, and knows uh, Allison Krauss and knows the late Claude Williams played guitar and we were on festival programs together and so this could start out uh sounding like um well I'll just say it could start out sounding like Steve Reich's music Charles, and you listen to American Roots with all this good music, man. Ain't that nice? Oh, I just love it. The other night, I How would you account then for your very broad vision of American music? I mean, there seems to be something that you have created with your own sight across the landscape. Well, my thing is, like my mom used to always tell me, be yourself, you know, because you see, you have to put yourself into the interpretation.
Talk to me about the transitions. You, you, you've mentioned this a couple of times. Well, you know, the Latin root, I know we have scholars here, I guess it's, you know, in Spanish, seguir, to follow. Uh, the segue was, you know, an occupational term uh, that I just learned doing uh, first college and then, and then the, the rock radio. Uh, and the idea was that, you know, you were trying to make some new sense out of, uh, uh, um, you, pl- you know, what, what did you just play, what's next and what's after, and how does what's third in the list resolve the first two or take people on a sort of a journey? I think, I think the metaphor was the journey. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you might play... Uh, you might play, I mean, in MMR, the, the rock station, we'd play like some Debussy into the classical side of the Moody Blues into maybe big strings at the top of a Ray Charles country western record. And uh, there's two elements to it that I still believe in, maybe even more strongly now than I did then. The sonic and the semantic. And the sonic is about um, things that flow well together or have a, a, a really good juxtaposition. But, it, but it, it's oriented towards holding the listener through flow because they're liking what they're hearing and they didn't notice that the next song was on. Or making the abrupt transition from one kind of thing to another and saying, hmm, I wonder why he did that. And that leads you to the semantic, which cannot be there, whether it's a flow or a cut. And that is the question of how does one thing inform the other? And it might be tragedy. It might be comedy. uh, It might be a topic. It might be a lot of different things. So they also reflect and kind of, I mean, they work in part because they they go along with one of the things you've talked about and you've written about, which is creolization, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're able to put those tunes together because across cultures or within cultures people are trading riffs and stealing ideas from each other and so there's this there is this kind of fluidity of of concept musically i was doing some of this the segues before but when i was in graduate school my work with afro-french louisiana creoles and the making of zydeco music as an emergent music form in the 20th century is part of their identity and their culture in french louisiana and but creolization is not limited to there i just happen to be a group of people who are called creoles who creolize jazz to me early jazz is very creolized um you know there's music in hawaii that's you know portuguese Anglo, cowboy, Spanish, Polynesian mix. I mean, I see it as very creolized. Uh, there's a lot of music and culture like that in the world, and some of it's more obviously creolized than other things. But I think working with those people in rural French Louisiana, dealing with the reality of the homeland for them was neither Africa, not, not Acadia of the Cajuns or France, but Louisiana. They made it in Louisiana, just like jazz made in New Orleans, you know? By doing that, we should be thinking about how creolized America is generally in terms of the emergence of our two most powerful pieces of cultural export, uh, which I would say was jazz and rock and roll. So that informs how you make the segues. But at the same time, you can play music with a capital C that's from a Creole community, like some of the old jazz or the Zydeco. But moreover, it's just small C creolization. You just kind of said this, and I was going to ask you this anyway. I wanted you to talk a little bit about the difference between creolization as it happens in the Louisiana or the Caribbean area and creolization as a general process. The counterpoint to globalization is creolization. The people that do deep ethnography, a lot of them don't think that's a good term. They think creole is too much inside the system of creole histories and cultures. They want comparative. It's like phonetics and phonemics. You know, if you know linguistics, phonetic alphabets to describe all the sounds. Phonemics is about the sounds within a particular language. And they, a lot of people feel like all the Creole stuff is really about the New World Afro-European and Native American collision. But there's none of that really. It's all European and Polynesian in Hawaii 
And they do call it Creole there natively, but it's also described that by, by linguists with a small c. You know, French Vietnam, I mean, Thai boy is a language that is essentially a, a new language in, in Vietnam and now fading because the French are gone. Um, and, and, but I would argue that if you really go to a lot of places in the world, um, the extent to which there is some kind of Creolization is the extent to which there's potential continuity, creativity, stability, and relative happiness in the face of world economic. Everyone will be the same. And by putting um, unknown artists uh, next to very known artists, what I'm doing is helping bring um, some light to the unknown artists and sound. And I, 15 minutes of fame sounds too trivial. But the flip side of that, though, is somebody like Willie Nelson. To him, the cotton field in Texas was an opera of different voices, Spanish, Czech, African-American, Anglo-Texan, singing, talking, and that he became attuned to the diversity of people working in the cotton field with him. His first band was a Czech band. We're in central Texas. We're all saw this Eastern Central European uh, migration from Germany over further to the uh, East. And so you've learned something about a very major figure that you're not going to get from his songs. Everything I play, I like. Everything I like is not played on American roots. But everything I play, I like, and I think I can convince people to like it. And I have a formula. Every third song will be something somebody I think is in the audience will like. It'll be a known artist playing an unknown song, uh, a very well-known song by somebody no one's ever heard of singing it. They, there was a Missouri uh, Loves Dylan tribute album, and when we did a Dylan show, we got, uh, I just, Bel Airs, yeah. And I'm like going down this list of 20 cuts, and I think, this is a really good tribute record from Missouri. And I think this is a great. Here's Dylan recycling everything from romantic poetry to blues and country and everything he's ever heard in his life and studied. And then here's the folks in Missouri liking Dylan and deciding they're going to do it. And they ran the gamut from like art rock to folky to jazz. And then this band was playing kind of a really solid rock country rockabilly version of everything is broken with like these little wonderfully weird uh, country soul bar chords in it. And, uh, you know, so, so there's an unknown group. I mean, not unknown to people in this town, maybe, but completely unknown nationally playing a, a known artist song. And it's very compelling. So you do that. And what's the third thing? Trying to f be fairly consistent in shared genres in American life. And I'll date myself on this a little bit, but I feel the shared genres are jazz, uh, rock and roll, rhythm and blues, soul, country, both old time and contemporary. Uh, I would add a certain amount of Tex-Mex, Zydeco, and Cajun around the edges. And that's familiar to a lot of people as a sound. So try to be keep your sonic segues moving with those sounds no matter what you're doing with content uh do you want to talk about the angola show now this is a show about angola prison about the work songs there and one of the things that that is very clear when you listen to it is the way that there's music that started there that has kind of found its way out uh into what would you call it vernacular music public music the show does kind of what i said about willie nelson i mean we're playing johnny cash uh, famously at Folsom Prison, and we're playing Merle Haggard, who did Prison Time, and he talks about it uh, in an interview we did with him. And, and we're playing prison songs in country music and in gospel um, by pretty well-known artists, but then we're also finding out how people are making music in prison today and using those. The, the superstructure of the famous people holds the general American Roots audience. Uh, the, the current moment in the prison... 
might not be so palatable to people, but we try and find really good performances, and we did a show there. We also got old historic performances that were quite surprising. I mean, there was a bebop band in Angola prison in the early late 50s. I mean, a really good bebop band. All these New Orleans guys on drug charges. I mean, really well-known New Orleans musicians like James Booker on piano and James Black on drums. And finally, Charles Neville of the Neville Brothers, who got busted for two joints in 1963. He was shoplifting, really, but they got him under the two joints. And he, he uh, joined that band. And so Charles Neville became our window in uh, as a person both from the outside who's famous but on the inside who, you know, saw people murdered in the fields and then ended up in the music library running the show there and integrating the band. And so we have a guide from the outside to in, and then we have all the in. And I, I, this was a real balance between documentary and stuff that might seem hard to listen to. So we loaded that towards the end of the show, hoping that people would listen at least to the second hour, if not both hours. So by the time we get to the prisoners, like singing a made-up old country song, old-sounding but newly made-up country song on a phone to a family member, it's like, damn, you know, your, your, your attention is gotten. So that was, that was kind of how, how it went down. That We interviewed a lot of the prisoners who were musicians. And they told us what, what they're in for. Some professed innocence. Some said, you know, I'm just paying for the crime. And it, it varies quite a bit. I know there's a lot of innocent people in Angola, but I would say the vast majority of them were guilty of something. Um, and many of them are trying to find a way home to either heaven or a family or a place. Uh, and that's a big struggle for them psychologically. And uh, I found that very poignant to listen to. This is American Roots. Angola Prison is 18,000 acres surrounded on three sides by the Mississippi River. In 1901, the Angola Plantation was taken over as the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Angola has ominous associations in a state that leads the nation in percent of population imprisoned, in a nation that has the highest incarceration rates in the world. The prison's been famous for work songs, like the one here by Roosevelt Charles Big Louisiana and Reverend Rogers, recorded in 1959 by Harry Oster. Angola was also known as The Farm for its sugar and cotton cash crops, grown by inmates, often under intolerable conditions. Music at Angola has been a part of prison life since its beginnings. Saxophonist Charles Neville, who served time in the early 60s, will tell us about that music scene, along with the voices of singers and scholars. What are the vernacular humanities? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I was an undergraduate in anthropology, and I struggled with what field I should be in. I grew up in a small town, and I learned early that our game warden was an Uncas Indian. And uh, I got to talking to him, and like a lot of people who lived the old culture, he had a more deep New England accent than people that were middle class. And so I first thought of him as an old Yankee, and then to find out he was an Indian, I was like, damn, that's fascinating. I kind of blew my mind. That's kind of a Creolist reality. And then, um, and then I noticed out in the woods all the people harvesting witch hazel uh, were wearing the black and red check coat of the classic Yankee apple picker farmer. 
And they were all with names like Sikowski and Pulaski. They were all from Bridgeport, Connecticut, or, or factory towns a generation into the countryside. And they were the ones replacing the old Yankees doing these things. So I guess I got attuned to that possibility of, of, of complexity. And I found solace uh, looking around. Now, American studies, I really didn't do. It seemed very straight to me. It was all Mark Twain, weather vanes, old barns. It didn't seem very active at the time. And it's a field that's since kind of really been effaced and absorbed into others. And then I, and then I went to the anthro department. I said, look, I'm really interested in all this uh, black music I'm hearing in the city. I've been going to the Aqua Lounge and hearing Coltrane's old band. I've been hearing doo-wop singers down in South Philly. And one corner on the black street corner, they're singing uh, old love songs and gospel. And on the white corner, it's like all these guys with names like... Uh, Roberto Riderelli, Bobby Rydell, you know, later these sweet soul, white soul singers singing operatically. And I said, I really want to deal with black music and black-white relations in the city. And the anthropologist's answer was, well, we do not do North America. Uh, if you're interested in the cattle wealth belt of the newer, we could deal with that. And I'm like, you know, I've come to you with this. What's wrong? So they, he said, go to the sociology department. Go to the sociology department. Well, we're doing, uh, in the black community, we're doing um, infant mortality, domestic violence, uh, alcoholism, prison recidivism. And I'm saying, I'm going to the Aqua Lounge every Saturday night and seeing guys in little thin suits and ties or dashikis playing the most intellectual and spiritual music I've ever heard. Where are they? Well, go to the music department. And, you know, I said, you guys, all you care about is trial, trouble, and trauma. And at that point, the Moynihan Report had come out advocating benign neglect of African-American culture and society. And I'm thinking, I want to deal with this. So I, I reluctantly went to anthropology, but a little secret thing happened. They had a folklore department, which they don't have. There's still departments like this at Indiana, North Carolina, Berkeley, a few other places. And there I took a course in jazz and blues. And it changed my life because all the jazz men in the city were coming into the classroom. And that led me to feel much more I could deal with expressive culture. And then I had this epiphany that in anthropology, they wanted you to read three by five file cards. And this is long before computerization of this kind of stuff. I mean, the computer that they had invented on campus in the late 40s was about as big as this room. But the file cards were small and in cabinets. And you just read, well, let's see cattle wealth. And they do a bride trade. And then they do a circumcision ceremony. And it's like... It all seemed very dry, factual, uh, secondary material, uninteresting. But I could go to the wall of records at the radio station and I could hear the, the marriage ceremony of the pygmies. I could hear the Delta Blues. I could hear the work songs from the prisons. I could hear Zydeco and say, where is that music from? It must be the Caribbean. It sounds so Caribbean to me. Find out, oh, that's in Louisiana. So in other words, the Wall of Records became my human relations aerophile card. So I just charted my own course independent of anthropology and over to folklore. And, and what am I doing 40 years later? I'm charting my own course in folklore, which I now call the vernacular humanities, which is your, was your question. And I do that in an academy where there's enormous snobism about things that don't have ology and istics on the end because it doesn't sound either scientific or social scientific enough to be academically acceptable. But I'm dealing with creativity and deep knowledge, I believe, of Americans who often are left to the edge. The narrative of the university 
post Katrina when they lost the half billion dollars. And I think some kids came here actually went around the country and farmed out for a while was that, that Tulane as the largest private employer had saved the city. But I have firmly believe the city saved Tulane and its culture and the city's culture saved the whole friggin' city. Music rebuilt the city. You know, it wasn't some plan. It wasn't a WPA rebuilding plan. I wish we'd had that. That's the human rights side of it. But I believe, I believe intangible culture saved New Orleans. Nothing you can touch. Mardi Gras relationships and parades, you can kind of touch them, but they're gone. It sounds so simple to say it. Uh, but buildings can be rebuilt. But in, unless people have the passion to rebuild them and re, re, return to the life, it's not going to happen. So it was a real uh, lesson in, in humility for everybody about what we really need and love in life and what we are going to have to do. Let's leave on a little uplift here. This is a little short set of segues that allows us to do- drop a lot of music uh, in terms of uh, the sonic uh, and uh, the uh, semantic in a way that I think works pretty well. good folks i got a pair of feet that have found that low down beat low down down around the spot that's hot have no peace losing my lease on living here's the how i'm telling you now to give in once you hear that haunting strain to it i bet my life you'll go insane to it hi ho doing the new low down Gets low down, but he's got the dirtiest job in town. Bending low at the people's feet on a windy corner of a dirty street. Will I ask him while he shine my shoes? How'd he keep from getting the blues? He grinned as he raised his get the blues. Come on, get a rhythm. When you get the blues. Ring like mine. 
Yeah! Ring like silver, shine like gold. Yeah! Ring like silver, shine like gold. Yeah! Ring like silver, laddie. Sound of the men working on the chain. Gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. You're traveling on American Roots. You've been listening to the Missouri Audio Project. I'm Yulia Shakis at the University of Missouri. Baby, please don't go. Baby, please don't go. Baby, please don't go back to New Orleans because I love you.